You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, church. My name is Wesley. Uh, Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, I know some of you might be traveling, but it seems like we still have a, a full house on this kind of, uh, kind of kickoff has been said to the summer. We often see it. Now, uh, before, you, before you throw the picture up there next, um, uh, Taylor, just send me some context real quick. Um, so this week, sometimes things just need context, right? Uh, this week on Twitter, uh, which is a great way to start, uh, I saw a, a, a picture. Now, one of my like, side hobbies, and, and if, if you're not with this, that's totally fine. It's something that when you grow up in the Southeast, it just, it's ingrained in you. But one of my side hobbies is to follow college football, okay? And the thing about college football is that I didn't hear a go dogs. I cannot believe I didn't hear it from you guys over here. Oh, yeah, I did? Okay. Um, one, one of the things about it is it's this, it, it's this kind of multi-million dollar industry that always creates uh, news. And, and in the off-season, the news is primarily about recruiting. And recruiting is essentially what uh, college, the major college programs do to try to attract the top high school players in the nation. So they try to put their best foot forward. They do everything they can to make they s- themselves as appealing as possible so that this person might accept their scholarship invitation. So they boast in their achievements. They, they set the standards high as they can, everything they can throw out so that they can put themselves in the best position to attract someone to their school. Uh, so that they can be the ones that receive that scholarship. Now, this week, one uh, institution decided to put this up as a boast of their school. Okay, go ahead and put it up there. All right. Uh, <laughs> Auburn, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to, Hannah, for you, I know you're an Auburn grad, I didn't do this because you read today, but um, they put this up there, and this was their brag, okay? The only SEC school with a Bucky's. Okay, now all the things to flex on, this has to be like the top thing I've ever seen, right? Uh, of all the things that you could say, hey, recruits, come see what's great about Auburn football, we have a Bucky's. Like, there's nothing that could top that. If you want a place that's attractive, this is a place. Now, there's another, there's another college coach that is really good about trolling online and Twitter, and so immediately he got his graphic design team to come up with this within an hour after seeing this photo. The only SEC school with a Chevron that sells chicken on a stick. Now, obviously, he's, he's making fun of the other program. Now, I, I put these incredibly silly photos up there, these ridiculous uh, photos, because that's just what they are, right? They're ridiculous. They're ridiculous boast. They're trying to set themselves apart from other institutions to put themselves in the best position to attract the praise and the adoration and ultimately the commitment of 18-year-old men. <laughs> right? Sounds pretty ridiculous when you think about it. And yet what we see today in our passage and and, and how this is going to come full circle is what Paul's doing is kind of setting the stage for us in the same way. He tells us at the very beginning that it's it's actually quite ridiculous for us to try to boast in anything that we can do in order to receive the approval of God, in order to receive the praise of God, in order to receive his righteousness. You see, Paul's been given this kind of very robust theological treatise on this doctrine we call justification in Romans. And we've been in it for weeks now. And, and what we've said in his beautiful articulation of, you've got to take this photo down, uh, D- Taylor. I just can't, <laughs> I can't take myself seriously with that still up on the screen. Um, all right, well, let's get back to it. He's been given this robust theological argument of this doctrine of justification. 
And in it, what we say is, is justification means that, that we, uh, as those who have sinned against God, it's, justification is an act of God where we, as those who have sinned against God, are justified based off of our faith in what Jesus has done for us. It is his righteousness, as we, we were singing earlier, not our own. It's kind of this legal declaration. We've, we've used this analogy that Paul's kind of like a lawyer. He's in a courtroom. And what he's painting a picture for us is that in the courtroom of God, in the cosmic courtroom of God, we are declared righteous. We are justified because of what Jesus has done for us. But what Paul does is he understands the human heart so well. And he understands that we just can't stay in the, the theological clouds and say, wow, that's a really enticing argument. That's amazing. Because he understands that the human heart is going to struggle with this concept of boasting constantly. It's something ingrained within us that we want praise. We want to know that we're important. We want to know that we're affirmed. We want to know deep in, in our soul that we matter in this life. And all of us struggle with it. It's a hard issue. And what Paul's going to bring full circle for us here today is that no matter how impressive we may seem to ourselves, and no matter how much we think we can boast in who we are, Paul's going to paint a picture for us that it's just as minuscule as saying we offer a chicken on a stick or a Bucky's when it comes to the standards of God. Our boasting in ourselves is rendered meaningless, silliness compared to what we need today to see is our dependence on God and him alone for his grace. And what it's going to lead to in the text that we're going to see this beautiful illustration through the life of Abraham of his trust and his faith in God. That when we see that we come to the end of ourselves and we see that we cannot boast in our own accomplishment, what that does is it allows us to get into a place where we can finally put our full weight, our full transparency, our full trust in Jesus. And when we do that, it redirects our praise. And that's what we're going to see today in our text. The main idea uh, of the heart level, which Paul's getting at here, is that we boast in Jesus Christ alone. As those who have been justified, as those who have been declared righteous in the courtroom of God, our boast becomes in Christ and in Christ alone. And how are we going to get there today? Well, our outlaw is going to flow straight from the text, and we're going to summarize a lot of this. We're not going to go into to every single verse, and we're also going to reflect back on Abraham's life a little bit in Genesis today as well. But here's the order. First, we've got to see our need for boasting, why it's a part of our human heart and the danger of it. And, and he's going to set the stage for us at the end of chapter 3 into 4. Then we're going to see the remedy to our boasting, which is our faith in Jesus, putting our faith, our trust in him. And then he's going to use the example of Abraham to teach us that. And then finally, the hope of God's promises. What that leads to is we can redirect our praise to God because he is faithful. And he deserves our praise. He is always faithful to his promises. We're going to see that the promises given to Abraham and, and the way Abraham can trust in God's promises, we likewise can have that same trust in God's promises for our life today. So as we begin, just again, we've been kind of painting this picture of, of background of Romans and where we're at. And just to kind of recap again, very simple. Paul has, has been given us what has seemed to be a, a universal and deep-seated rebellion of God. That is the human race. He has painted that picture for us in Romans 1 and in Romans 2 and even at the beginning of Romans 3. And he's not doing that to, to lead us into despair. He's doing it so that we can actually see the good news of the gospel which is then very articulately presented to us that although we fall short of God's standards, in chapter 3 we see that there is a righteousness not of our own. That even God's law, as good as it is, and, and, and as, as, as good as it is for us to see his word and his law, which we, we talked about the last few weeks, as good as that is, it only shows us really in its core our need for a savior. Our need for a righteousness not of our own. And Jesus provides that for us. And he leads us to that beautiful 
uh, truth last week that there's a righteousness that has come in Jesus Christ. But now what he's going to do is he's going to use Abraham, who if you don't know much about the Old Testament, uh, Abraham would, would be someone who would be on the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament saints, right? I mean, he, he is the guy. He is the father of God's people. You seen that song, Father Abraham, right? Had many sons. It's true, right? He, he is the father of it all. And, and he's going to use his story as a case study of why we don't boast ourselves, but we instead put our faith in what God has done for us. Let's see our need and danger of boasting. Look at verse 1. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Again, this, this patriarch, this giant of the faith. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what is Paul doing here? Well, he's introducing here this concept of boasting again. And the end of chapter 3, as Ben was doing chapter 3 last week, at the end of it in verse 27, he, he first brings in this idea of our heart's desire to boast. And he says a question in chapter 3. He says, what becomes of our boasting? If we, if we try to boast, what becomes of it, right? And then he, he uses Abraham as an example. He says, Abraham, of all people, right, should have a reason to boast. I mean, we look up to this guy. He, we, say, we say when we proclaim our belief in God that we believe in the God of Abraham, right? He would have reason to boast, right? What would be his boasting? Well, Paul kind of diminishes this. He says, no, look, even Abraham, before God, when it comes to our standing before God, when it comes to answering that core essential question to our humanity, how could we maybe right with God, even Abraham doesn't have things to boast about. Even Abraham would fall short of the reason to brag to God. Now, what he's not saying here is that, that we shouldn't be, feel proud of things in our lives or that, that boasting is this thing where, okay, if you accomplish something, you shouldn't be proud about it, right? You sh- should tell other people about it. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying when it comes before God, when we ask that question, how can we be right with God, what do we have to offer to the table? What truly can we boast in? You see, the reason Paul's addressing this, and you'll find in all of, almost all of his epistles, he addresses it on some level, because he knows that our heart's desire is to boast, is to find a reason to, to, to the significance of who we are. That's really what the core of boasting is. We ask ourselves the question, what is boasting? It's this idea, it's this concept of, I've done something. Something enough that, that an accomplishment or something has been credited to me. It accounts to me. I've accomplished it. And the reason we boast in the things that we can accomplish, whether they're good things or, or whether they're uh, things about who we are, the reason we do that is because in our essence, we want to know that we're important. We want to have some level of ability to walk around and say, I have significance. That I matter in this world. We need boasting in our hearts to walk out in the world with, with some level of confidence, Right? It's actually a need of our souls to say that there's something that I can point to that says I matter. Well, that's my intelligence, my education, my beauty, my status, my job, whatever it may be. There's something I can point to in my life and say I matter. I I can be affirmed in this. And Paul says, now, that's a need for sure here, but he also with this question is showing us that it's a danger as well. Because his, his answer to the question is, there's nothing. There's nothing that we can truly boast in before God. And where is he drawing on this concept? Uh, uh, most commentators think that he's actually uh, drawing from Jeremiah chapter 9, 
which is one of the most famous passages about boasting in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah chapter 9 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see, Jeremiah it uses this word boasting, which in the Hebrew language is the word hale. Now that's important because we get the, our, our word that we sing often, the word hallelujah from this. It's the root word, hale. Hallelujah means praise to God. What is he saying here? Why is this important for us? Because the, the essence of why boasting is such a deep-rooted heart issue is because all of us are trying to put forth our spiritual resume, right? We're all trying to put forth this, this spiritual resume. Why? Because we, we have an end game. We want to put forth an external record of everything that we've accomplished so that we can impress somebody so that we can be praiseworthy, so that we can experience that halle so that we can know that someone looks at us and, and they adore praise on us, right? When you go in for a job interview, is that not what you want? You want the, the person to walk out of there looking at your record and saying, man, I want to hire that person. I, I, I see their accomplishments. We want to experience that praise so that we can get in. And all of us on some level, it, it, deep within our soul, we're trying to accomplish this because we want to know that we matter. We want to, we want to know what defines us in this world. What can, what can we point to and say, I'm okay, I have purpose in this life. But Paul here is going to start with this concept to remind us that what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our boasting is it will fade. If we try to boast in anything in this life, anything in this world, apart from Jesus himself, it will create an unstable identity. The things that we try to uh, receive praise from, it will create an unstable identity. If it's your beauty, your beauty will fade. If it's your job and your finances, well, guess what? Recession will happen, inflation will happen, you'll, you'll have layoffs, it will fade. If it's in relationships with other people, eventually that too will pass away. And we're left, as one commentator says, like a king without a country. That's what boasting does. It, it puts us up on a pedestal. We feel like we're the king, but we have no country to share it with. Because at the end, those things will fade away. Here's how it affects my heart. Here's an example. Um, from time to time, when, I, when I'm preparing to preach a sermon, I have these nightmares, okay? And what they are is they're nightmares about the service, and uh, like I had one recently, and uh, I showed up here uh, to the church, and I, I just had my white t-shirt on and some joggers. I left my suit. That was the first thing uh, that I, I started panicking about. And the second thing was, was I couldn't find my notes. And so I was digging in my book bag in the back, trying to find some notes that I could use that day. I don't care what it was. It was an old sermon. It didn't matter. I just needed something that I could preach that day. And all the while, John, somehow, some of you were in the, the dream as well. And you were like off key up here, like playing or something. I'm like, this is just a train wreck. And, um, and, and so I just, I was worried. Now, why did I have that nightmare? Why was that there? Well, well because my heart boasted something. And what it is, is, is I wanted your approval. I wanted to know that I could get up here and do a good job and that you would like me. That was at the core of my heart. That was, that was part of my identity. That was causing that, that nightmare to, to well up. I wanted you to be able to look at me and say, Wesley, that was a good sermon. You see, on some level, we all deal with this, right? And if you were to come up to me after the service and you were to say, that was a bad sermon, Wesley, please don't ever do that, by the way. Um, <laughs> or, or, or you said that was a good sermon, Wesley, which is okay to say. But, it, but if you said that, listen, if you said that, I'd feel good in the moment until I begin to prepare the next one. Because then again, I would be worrying, well, are they going to say the same thing about the next one as they said in the last one? 
You see, the point is this. When we boast in something other than Jesus, we can't win. It will always defeat us. It will always leave us empty. It will, it, it will always leave us to be a king without a country. We'll feel great in one moment, and then the next moment, we'll feel terrible about ourselves. We'll have no stability of what really matters, how we can find importance and praiseworthiness in this life, because those things will be empty. They'll leave us empty. Which is why Paul's setting the stage to show us the remedy through Abraham here, which is true faith. This text is, is a, a text about faith in Jesus. It is a text to show us how we can put our faith in him. And the reason why I say faith is the remedy of the danger of boasting is because it's the precise opposite of it. Boasting is looking inward and saying, how can I feel praised? How can I feel worthy? How can I feel like I matter? What can I point to in my record that can show that I have a purpose, that I can walk out in this world in confidence? But what faith is, and what Paul is introducing as faith here, is a transfer of our trust onto something else. It's a full transfer of our trust into something else. If you look at the text, he says here at the beginning that Abraham believed God. He believed God, and it was counted as righteousness to him. He believed God. He didn't believe about God. He didn't just have some kind of general belief that there was a God. He believed God. He put his trust in God, and it was credited to him. It was counted to him as righteousness. It, it wasn't as if he just said, well, let's just kind of go to church. That's enough. Let's just have a general belief about God. No, he transferred his full trust onto the God of the Bible. See, here's an, maybe an example that will help us. Let's take this chair for an example. I can look at this chair and I can say I believe in the chair. I, I can look at the chair and I say I, can, I like singing about chairs. I, I can look at the chair and I can say I, I affirm the value that a chair brings. I can sit here from a distance and say I believe in a chair. But do I really trust the chair? No. I don't trust the chair until I put my full weight on it. And that's the same way in which Paul is describing Abraham's faith here. And when it says Abraham believed God and was credited in his righteousness, it was a transfer of his full dependency upon God. His full weight, the, the full weight of his soul upon God. And that's precisely the remedy that helps us in our boasting when we transfer everything that we are upon Jesus. And in that moment, the beauty of justification is that when we do that, he justifies us. He accepts us. He declares us righteous, just like he did for Abraham. Now, still within our souls, I think our immediate reaction to that is, okay, well, what do I actually have to bring to the table in order to, to receive that? What do I actually have to do in, in order to receive that kind of blessing from Jesus? Right? Well, Paul's going to remind us here again that our faith is not based in our works. It's never based in our works. He says of Abraham here, at the very beginning, who does he say God justifies? He doesn't say the righteous. No. The ungodly, the wicked. How amazing is in the first few chapters of Romans chapter 4, he lumps together the case study of Abraham with God justifying the unrighteous, the, the wicked. The one we look to and say, well, Abraham was so great. Abraham is, is on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. How could, he, how could he, in the same sentence, talk about Abraham and the wicked and God justifying those who have fallen short? Because he's making a point for us here. His point is even Abraham, even Abraham, 
is an example that God accepts him before he ever obeys him. God accepted Abraham before he ever obeyed God. And and Paul doubles down on this fact. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And, and Paul continues on with circumcision, 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 to the point where it's uncomfortable to read anymore. But his, his point here is simply this, right? We're talking about circumcision. His point he's making here is this, that God accepted Abraham based off of his faith before he ever told Abraham to follow any laws, including the law of circumcision. Before he ever even gives him that, he accepts him based off of his belief and its credit is counted to him as righteousness. That word account, counted to him or credited to him is an accounting term. It means, though you, didn't un, it means it do, though you don't earn the million dollars, right? It is accounted, it is credited to your account. It is yours now. You didn't earn it, doesn't matter. It's, it's accounted to you. It's, it's credited to you. That is the beauty here. It's not based on what we can do, but when we believe in God, we put our faith in him just like Abraham, it is counted towards us. Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection is now deposited into our accounts. Well, you say, well, okay, I understand that, Wesley, but there's times where I feel very weak in my faith. Well, Abraham's a great example, again, to show you that it's not about how strong your faith is. It's not just that it's not based off our works. The faith that remedies our boasting is sometimes a weak faith. Look at the, the uh, as this continues in verse 18. It says, in hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. That was the promise, right? The promise to Abraham was God told him, you're going to be the father of many, I'm going to bless you with an offspring, and you're going to be the father of, of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And look at verse 19. For he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Why? Because he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Well, his wife couldn't have children. She was old too. Look at verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, when I first read this, I thought to myself, does Paul have the same copy of the book of Genesis that I do? (laughs) Because the fact that he said that Abraham's faith was unwavering, (laughs) that his faith was strong, doesn't seem like the same Abraham that I read about in the Old Testament. Because when you go back and you read in Genesis chapter 15, yeah, you see Abraham with a strong faith, right? He believes God's promise. He believes that he's going to be the father of many nations. But then in Genesis 16, the next chapter, what happens? Him and Sarah get a little impatient. They start thinking, well, I don't know if I believe God's going to fulfill this promise the way he thinks he is. So let's take matters in our own hand. Sarah says, hey, let me give you my servant, Hagar. Why don't you lie with her and, and then you guys have a kid? And they do. It ends up being a train wreck. And they get down to, to chapter 20 of Genesis. And this is not the first time, by the way, this happened in Abraham's life. But in chapter 20, he's going before a, a powerful king named Abimelech. And he's already gone before a powerful king before in, in Egypt. And in that moment, he looked at his, his lovely bride, Sarah, and says, hey, Sarah, you're, you're beautiful, right? You're really good looking. And here's what's going to happen. They're going to they're gonna want to, to get to you through me. So I'm just going to lie and say you're my sister so that I can protect myself. And he does it again in chapter 20. Chapter 20, he goes to Abimelech, he says the same thing. Hey, this is not my wife. 
right? He throws her under the bus so he could save his own skin. See, here's what we learn from Abraham. We learn that he was a man of great faith. We also learn that he was a colossal failure at times. He doubted God at times, and he was a pretty crappy husband at times, right? And yet, Paul looks at him and says, this man had unwavering faith. What's his point here? His point is simply this, that the moments when we come to the end of ourselves are the moments when God is going to remind us that it's not the strength of our faith, but it's the object of our faith. Have you ever gotten to the point where you just feel tired of yourself? You ever get to a point where you just say, why can't I trust God? Why, why, do, I, why do I always think I have to be in control? Why am I anxious about every circumstance of life? Why can't I just believe God is faithful? And you come to those moments where you just feel like I'm a colossal failure. Those are the moments that God has a purpose. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, it's an opportunity for us to see that we should never grow tired of his grace. It is always there for us. In the moments we feel weak, in the moments where life gets messy, God has grace for us. Here's perhaps an illustration that helps us understand this. My oldest daughter, Ellie, um, loves art, okay? And she got into it at an early age. When she was three, she presented her first portrait, and she worked really hard. I mean, it took her a few minutes. She worked really hard on this picture, and she presented it to me. And, well, this is the photo, okay? Um, <laughs> uh, it's not very accurate, right? Uh, it looks like a disturbed Mr. Potato Head with pizza legs or something. But um, she, she presents this to me, and I said, oh, sweetie, how beautiful. And I said, who is this? And she goes, it's you, Dad. And um, you know what? I'm not kidding when I say this. At that moment, this picture right here, by the way, that, that I still keep, that rivaled the greats like Van Gogh, like Picasso, right? It did. You know why? Because this little creature offered something messy, but it was the best she could We lost. We're good. She offered it knowing that there was a response of love from her dad. And you know what? That is how we can live in this life. See, when you begin to understand that just like my daughter there, that we have the praise of our Father because of Christ. We have his applause, his thunderous affirmation of our souls. When we believe in him because of God through grace, not on the basis of anything we do, we have the applause and the adoration of our Father. When we believe that, then we can begin to understand what Jesus says in the Gospels, that even if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, the very smallest seed culturally, even when we have that, we can move mountains. Even when our faith seems small, even if it seems weak, it's a reminder that it's not the, the strength of our faith that allows us to, to believe in Jesus. It is the object of our faith and what he has done for us that strengthens us. It is based on his grace and not the strength that we possess in ourselves, which means that we can go through this life and we can know in those weak moments, the moments we feel like our faith is wavering, in those moments we can believe and remind ourselves that God has declared us righteous through Jesus Christ. That means on our best days and on our worst days, God looks at us and he says, I love you just like I love my own son, Jesus. That's the gospel. It's not based on your own strength. And then finally, it's not based in a blind belief. The, the faith that God calls us to here, the faith that is modeled in Abraham that can, that can remedy the boasting of our hearts is not a blind faith. It's not an irrational faith. God shows Abraham and he shows us in the scriptures that he's good for it. He doesn't call us to irrationally just believe abstractly in God. He gives us a reason to believe in him. 
And if you go back to Genesis 15, again, I'm just going to summarize it here because we don't have time to go through all of it. But if you go back to Genesis 15, when he tells Abraham, hey, look, you're going to have you're going to have an offspring. And Abraham's like, well, look, I'm old, right? Like this, is, this seems, I don't have to go through ninth grade biology class again to know that this is not going to happen, right? And he looks at Abraham, he says, look up the sky. You see the stars in the sky? I'm making a promise to you right now. Your, your offspring will be more numerous than those stars. And, and Abraham still doubts a little bit. And he says, how do I know? Like, how do, how do I know you're good for it here, God? How, how do I know you're, you're going to uphold your end of the promise? And this is what God does. He looks at Abraham. He doesn't get mad at him. He says, go get a ram, go get a goat, and go get a heifer. Sounds like they're about to have a barbecue, but it's not what's going to happen. He immediately goes and gets it. He gets the ram, he gets the goat, he gets the heifer. What is he doing? He's establishing a covenant with him. See, in those days, it wasn't a written culture where you would sign a contract with two parties in agreement. What you would do is you would go get these animals, you would cut those animals up, you would create an aisle with animals of both sides, and you would enter in a contract and agreement. And normally it'd be between noblemen or, or kings and, and over land or stuff like that, and they would enter this covenant, and they would cut these animals, and they would separate them, and they'd walk through them, and when they walked through them, what they were declaring was, if I don't uphold my end of the deal, may I become like these animals. And then the other person would walk through and they'd say, if I don't uphold my end of the contract, my end of the deal, may I become like these animals? That was the consequence. May I be cut up if, if I fail to uphold my end of the deal? And what happens in this moment is remarkable. The next moment, it says this darkness overcomes Abraham. And he looks up and he sees this, this smoldering, smoking fire pot. Right? It's the same word, the same phrase that's described uh, God on Mount Sinai in his presence and also when he's leading the exodus through a pillar of smoke and fire the very presence of God. And you know what happens next? God walks through the animals. But you know who doesn't walk through them? Abraham. What is God teaching us here? God's reminding us, hey, look, Abraham, I'm good, I'm good for it. Let me, show, let me prove to you how I'm good for it to uphold this promise. I'm going to walk through this, which means that if I don't uphold my end of the deal, Abraham, if you don't, if you don't have an offspring, if you don't become the father of many nations like I promised to you, then may what's happened to these animals happen to me. But you know what? God doubles down the, the dotted line. He also goes through it for Abraham. And he says, Abraham, if you don't uphold your end of the promise, if you don't obey me, if you don't love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if, if you struggle with that, if you don't uphold your end of the, the covenant here, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I be cut up on your behalf. God says, hey, I'm good for it, Abraham. Let me show you how I can trust, you can trust me. I'm going to sign on the dotted line not just for me, but for you as well. And that trust is demonstrated in Jesus, right? At the end of the day, Jesus goes to the cross. He enters that full darkness for us. He enters the fire for us. He, he signs the dotted line, and he says, may I be cut up and, and bleed for you. I'm always going to uphold my end of the deal. I'm always faithful. And he demonstrates that faithfulness by going to the cross and showing us his commitment to the promise that he's going to redeem us and provide a way for us to know him. He's good for it. We don't follow in a blind faith here. We can trust in Jesus. We can place our trust in Jesus. In fact, it's the most rational thing you can do is to place your trust in the one who would die for you. And that leads us finally to the end here, our hope in God's promises. You see, we know that there's a need in our hearts for approval and affirmation. All of us have it. The danger is when we place it in the things of this world. And the remedy to that is, is putting our faith in Jesus, putting our faith in the one who can do what we can't. We can trust him. We can know he's good for it. 
We can know that we can lean on him and not our own strength. And what that leads to us is this incredible hope in God's promises. A hope that no matter what circumstances we face, we can believe in God. We can put our hope in him, just like Abraham. Against all odds, Abraham trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what that means for us really is two promises I want to leave us with before we go to our time of communion. The first is an implicit promise in this text today. And the implicit promise is simply this. For you, as a follower of Jesus, if you put your trust in him, that righteousness is credited to you. And you know what that means? That over time, we can assume this to be true, but over time, that righteousness that has been credited to you because of Jesus begins to turn into actual righteous living. You see, in those moments we feel weak, those moments we feel like, why God, why am I? The more you put your trust in him, the more you put your boast in Jesus, the more you become like him. That is the promise. The more we put our boast in him, the more we, we walk with him. It's, it's like my daughter Ellie again, right? She, she paints these pictures, she shows these pictures, and she brings this confusing artwork to us, and guess what we do? We praise her for it. We tell her it's beautiful because it's beautiful. We tell her it's beautiful because she's, she's offering that art as an expression of her love towards us, and she receives love back. But you know what happens over time? She, she creates a joy and a passion for that art. And guess what? She gets better at it, right? It becomes more discernible. And the same is true. When we realize we have the, the praise and the applause of our Father, that is all we need in this life to walk victoriously, even through the, the mess of this life even through the weak moments of this life. And, and to know that in the story of Abraham, even through his weakness, even through his failure, he's trusted in God's promise, and God reassured him of his promise time and time again, and he grew in his faith. And the same could be true of us. That's the implicit promise that we'll grow in our righteous living as we see the righteousness applied to our lives. And then secondly, and finally, there's an explicit promise for a better future for us here. The reason we can boast of Jesus is because he has promised and guaranteed us a better future than we could ever dream of. A, a better future than we could ever hope of. That was what Abraham desired, right? He, he had a, a dream of a better future, that he'd be a dad, that he'd be a granddad, that he'd be a great-granddad, he'd have all these babies in his family, he'd be the father of many nations. And you know what Hebrews reminds us? That Sarah and Abraham never saw the fulfillment of that. But you know what they did? They longed for a better country. You know what they did? They knew that the best had, was yet to come because of God's provision of their one son. He even says that they laughed with joy at the end of their life because they knew that God was faithful to his promise. And we can sit here and say, well, of course, Abraham had this an incredible visible sign of God's faithfulness and he had this audible sign of God's faithfulness, but it's just hard to follow and believe this to be true. Well, let me show you the visible sign here. The visible sign for us this morning that God is faithful to his promise is in this room today. Because today, we see more of the reality of God's promise to Abraham than he got to see. Because every single one of us in this room that believes upon Jesus, that believes in God's redemptive plan is a fulfillment of that promise. When Abraham looked at the stars and he saw stars lit up, he saw stars lit up for every single person in this room today who believed in God's redemptive plan through Christ. We see the evidence right now that God is faithful to his promise. But there's also an audible sign to us here. And that comes in the end, verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not just written for his sake alone. So you hear that? Paul says it's not just for Abraham, but also for us. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See here, the Bible teaches us that Jesus in his resurrection was the first fruits of the life to come. 
of a glorious future for us. Because Jesus was resurrected, it guarantees that one day that we will too. And we'll experience a life with him that is above anything and beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Why would we boast in anything less than him? Why do we want to put our, sink our praise into anything less than the one who has guaranteed us a hope, a future, that the best is yet to come? This is how we can put one foot in front of the other in this world. With confidence, we can walk through this life knowing that when those inner halays, when those inner halays come up in our lives, whether it be our, our jobs, our accolades, or our, our beauty, or, or even our relationships, we can look at those things and we can remind ourselves that oh, those are great things. They are not our life. They are not our life. Jesus has won our life for us because he had no reputation in himself when he came to this earth. He, he allowed us to be named as a son and daughter of God. Though when he got up on the world stage in front of everyone, he wasn't appraised the acclamation of heaven was lost in those moments, and in those moments instead, he was rejected. And he did it so that the Father would look on you and praise you because of what Christ has done for you. That the Father would love you because of what Christ has done for you. What else do we boast in today? Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.